0: Luke 7:18 through 35 The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? And calling to one another, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Grass withers, the flower fades. Word of our God stands forever. Have you ever found yourself hungry for something, but not really knowing what that is? Not really anything. You're just hungry for something, but you go to the fridge and you open the doors and you look at everything that's in there and you, just, you, you know you're hungry or thirsty or something, but just nothing is what you want, right? And no matter what, you go to your cupboard or if, if your spouse is like trying to help you out, even they're, they're asking you, what do you want? I don't know. Are you hungry? Yes. What do you want? I don't know. And this becomes exceedingly furious if you've got little kids around you and they begin to grow up and they are the masters of wanting something but not really having any idea what they want. They just know that the thing that you're offering is not the thing that you want. So you might go to the cupboard if they're hungry they want snack or something. Do you want Doritos? no. Do you want a Swiss cake roll? No. Do you want a peanut butter sandwich? No. Do you want a banana? No. You go on and on and on and no. Do you want anything? Yeah. What do you want? And and no one really can't figure it out. And we've all kind of experienced this. You go through a dozen different things and and you just solidify the reality that you you know you want something, but, but what's being there isn't what you want, but you know you want something. And this weird feeling, and as annoying and as silly as that is, in in many ways, what we do when God doesn't turn out to be exactly a thing that we want Him to be, we 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 do the same thing. God shows up, and, and we know we, we know we want something, and He shows up, and we we see Him for who He is, and we kind of decide maybe this isn't. What I want. I know I want something. I know there's something out there. I know that, I know that God is important and I want, I'm interested in God. But then when we see, we get this presentation of, okay, well, here's who I am. Oftentimes we end up saying, well, I'm interested in God, but not, not that. I know that I want you, but I don't want you. And, and this, this way, that, that happens, the, that we go through life. We can pretend like, and you may, may pretend like you've never really experienced this, but I, I think we'd all have to be lying to admit that there are times, to not or to deny, that there are times when we, we have seen what has been offered to us and in, in, in what we have gotten has not been what we want, and so we reject that we ever wanted anything. I'd, I'd wager that there isn't anyone here, who hasn't at some point in life found themselves disappointed with God's will and His way and who in that disappointment didn't find it very difficult and damaging to your faith in Him for who you understood Him to be. We we understand that we want this God. We understand that we want this greater being. But then often the things that are dealt out to us from Him make us wonder, are we sure that this is that what we want. We, we thought we wanted something, but now that we get who he is, maybe we, we don't want him. What, what are we to do in these moments? And when these conflicts arise inside of us, where are we to look? When the God that we thought we were getting turns out to be, have some different things than what we thought we were getting. And this is exactly where we find ourselves with John the Baptist. The, the big idea for this morning is that Jesus is not the God of your making, he is the God who is. Jesus is is not the God of your making, he is the God who is, and that's good. He's not the God of your making, he is the God who is, and that's good. One way of looking at this narrative we just have read of John the Baptist, and some commentators take this angle, J.C. Ryle took this angle, and I don't... I, don't, I kind of disagree with it, but one of the angles they, they come up with is that John the Baptist is sending these disciples to ask Jesus about what's going on as a, as a help to his disciples. That John the Baptist, they say, these commentators, John the Baptist knows that it's, he's not going well with him and he fears for his disciples. He wants them to embrace Jesus so they send them to Jesus in the hopes that they will hear the message from Jesus and place their faith in Jesus as well. And that's an angle they take. And I, I understand the, the argument and, and why they want to push it that way. But I think it doesn't, it doesn't really give credit to the weight of what's going on here when it says to us that John the Baptist sent the disciples to Jesus and Jesus says, report to John and they report back to John. I think a plain reading tells us that John sent disciples. John the Baptist, this guy who baptized Jesus in the Jordan, sends disciples with this question. Are you the one who is to come? But I thought when I saw, when I saw commentators reading the text that way, it, it made me ask, why would you want to read it that way? I mean, because I, I think if you, I'd, I've always heard it preached that John the Baptist is just honestly questioning. Is Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Why would you ever want to read it this way that it isn't that John the Baptist is doubting, it's that he's wanting to help his disciples? There is this fear, and I'm not, not, not trying to uh, malign those who would, that this is their motive, but I can see the, the desire underneath reading the text that way is this idea that we, we feel the need to have these heroes in the Bible. We don't want anyone to be human in the Bible. We don't want this reality to be that John the Baptist, a great prophet, though he was the greatest among men, Jesus says, this great man that he could have issues. Because what we like to create in our Christianity is this idea that we become these perfect, stalwart, you know, amazing individuals. And we come to faith in Christ, and boy, we got everything figured out from there on out. Just like John the Baptist, he's going to help his disciples. He was never confused. He knew all along who Jesus was. But the clear, And so you, there's this desire that we take the Bible to be these moral examples. And you look at all the good stories of King David, not the bad ones. Look at all the good stories of Abraham, not his bad ones. Look at all the good stories about Moses and Noah and not their bad ones. And we say, look This is what it means to be a believer. This is what it means to be a Christian. Look at all these good examples. And we forget all of their infidelities and sinfulness and the terrible uh, things they committed because we want to have this exalted figures to to follow after. Well, the reality is we do have this exalted figure in the Scriptures. It's Jesus. And all the rest of us are just humans. The, The Bible gives us many examples of flawed people who have faith and are forgiven in Christ. If, and so there's this function, there's this desire to see John the Baptist like this so we can kind of beat other people up. You know, you have doubts? You're, you're questioning? How dare you? This is only about we have absolute confidence and we can never ever look at our life and, and turn our eyes to heaven and be like, I'm, this is disappointing. Well, John the Baptist. Who's the greatest of men, Jesus says, that ever walked the earth, greatest born of women, none is greater than John, is a guy who looked at his life circumstances, at least in this instance, and said, this is not what I thought it was going to be. And is that okay? I think it's an important question to answer because, let's be honest, there are times that life comes across you and you think, I might be a little disappointed with the way this has worked out. Is it okay is it okay to do that? Why, why is John the Baptist asking this question, though? I mean, so we got to maybe get a little context. If you go back to chapter 3, where we see this baptism of Jesus, you remember, you remember John the Baptist was a witness of the voice of, of Jesus going down into the water. So let's, let's read chapter 3, verses 21 22. When all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, whatever that... Something happens here. The heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Holy Spirit's not a dove, but it descends like a dove. And a voice comes from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. John the Baptist is a witness to this incredible event at the baptism of Jesus. John the Baptist gives testimony, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We read in the Gospel of John. But if you jump up from 321, we see chronologically it's mixed up here in Luke, but what's happened since this baptism is on up here in verse 18. With many other exhortations, he, being John the Baptist, preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, Added this to him all that he locked up John in prison. John doesn't really include it in our narrative here, but just to make sure we're all on the same page, John sends his disciples to Jesus from prison. John is in prison, in Herod's prison. He has been calling out for repentance, he has condemned Herod of being a sinner, he has taken his brother's wife. To be his own, he has sinned and he has uncovered his brother's nakedness. He has sinned greatly against God. John the Baptist calls him out on it and he adds this sin to all of those. He puts John in prison, doesn't like what he has to say, so he throws him in jail. So when John sends his disciples to question Jesus about his identity, he sends them from his cell in Herod's prison. I think that it's safe to say... (laughs) that the Jesus John was looking for was turning out to be a little different than he thought he would be. I think it's safe to say that. This lamb who's going to take away the sins of the world is, is turning out to be a little different than he thought he would be. One of my commentaries said this, I quote, It was all right going about healing an odd slave here and raising the widow's son from the dead there. Those are the two stories we covered last week. It was all right going about healing an odd slave here and raising a widow's son from the dead there. John had nothing against that. But what about the big issues? When was Jesus going to start putting oppressive governments right, abolishing evil rulers like Herod, putting down the Roman tyranny and giving Israel her political independence? And to add just one more question to the list, when was Jesus going to get his prophet out of prison? This is what John is asking, are you the one who is to come? Because let's be honest, I'm in jail, and if you're the one who is to come, let's, let's do this. Let's get this thing moving. Let's break me out of jail. It seems that if we don't allow this to be the reality concerning John the Baptist, we unnecessarily punish ourselves when our lives get uprooted and tossed around and we find Jesus not to be exactly the Jesus that we thought he should be. The Jesus that John the Baptist is looking for, he asks this interesting question, right? He says, are you the one who is to come? That's what he sends his disciples to look for. And we've got to remember that in this Jewish mind, they are looking for this coming anointed one. There's this Messiah they are waiting for. When we You can start back in Genesis 3.15 when it talks about the seed of the woman who is going to be bruised on the heel as he bruises the serpent's head. There's this coming one. There's this seed of the woman who is coming. You could go to the descendant of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, this one who is going to, through whom all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. You could go then to King David, who's going to have an heir, who's going to sit on the throne forever. And they're looking, looking, and looking. There is this coming one. There is this coming one. And in Isaiah, there's a few references. If you still have your pew Bible there with you, you can flip with me in Isaiah First of chapter 35, it's found on page 707 in your pew Bible if you want to go with me. But Isaiah chapter 35, verses 3 through 6, describe what this coming one is going to be like. Isaiah 35, 3 through 6, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. Hear what? This is is a text John would be thinking of. Here's what the coming one looks like. Additionally, verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. We see this description of the coming Lord. It'll be a day of rejoicing. It'll be a day of judgment, of opening of the blind eyes, of hearing of the deaf, of the leaping of those who cannot walk, of tongues speaking for those who cannot. What a great day is coming. And this is what the coming one is going to bring with him. Also, you can flip back in Isaiah 61, and this is a passage Jesus quoted there in his, if you remember way back in uh, Luke chapter 4, at his sermon at the synagogue in Nazareth, he preaches from Isaiah sixty-one one, it says this. This is on page uh, seven thirty-seven of your pew Bible. Isaiah sixty-one one, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Pay attention to this one: to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. It's interesting to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. This is the description of the one who is coming. And these are all things John the Baptist would have in his mind as he sits in prison. Are you this coming one? You, You get the references in there to bringing liberty to the captives, the breaking open of prison doors. And where's John the Baptist? He's in jail. So... This is the Jesus that John thinks is going to be coming. It's this one who's going to overthrow Roman tyranny. It's this one who's going to get rid of these evil rulers. And this, this is his expectation. And in chapter, verse 22 of chapter 7 of our text, Jesus answers these disciples after they've asked, and he's performed these miracles in front of them as well, right? They show up and he heals many of diseases and plagues and Gets rid of evil spirits. And he tells them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And he's saying, You're looking, are you the one to come? And Jesus' definite, definitive answer is yes. He's saying, Look, look at all of these evidences. Here I am, I am the one to come. I look at the works I am performing. He says, I am the one you are looking for. This I am the one who is to come. Which pushes us into our next question. What if the one we are looking for doesn't do the things we want him to do or think he should do? What if the one who is to come, the one we're looking for, doesn't do the things that we think he should do? Namely, in John's case, free him from prison. Overthrow evil authorities. There's I, you're probably picking up on it. There's some direct application here, right? We're not John in prison, but how many of us, what do we do? The question we could ask ourselves, what do we do when we find the one we've been looking for and then find that he's not going to do all that we think he should do? It forced us to answer this. Are you looking for the one, the coming one for who he truly is, Are you looking for the coming one for who He truly is? Or are you looking for the coming one for who you want Him to be? Are you looking for the coming one for who He truly is? Or are you looking for the coming one for who you want Him to be? Do you want Jesus to be the God of your own making? Or the God who He is? Do you want Jesus to be the God of your own making? Or the God who He is? Is Jesus, the true God, on His mission? Or is Jesus a divine butler on our mission? And I say that kind of with, some, with a little jab in it. But oftentimes, honestly, is Jesus our God on his divine mission to accomplish his purpose? Or is Jesus our divine butler here to accomplish our mission? This is what Jesus is getting at with his admonition here later on in his discourse with John's disciples. He says, with, after they leave, he says this beatitude, Blessed are those who, are, who or he says this to them, excuse me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me, which is another reference to Isaiah. But why would they be offended? Why, why is this blessed is the one who's not offended by me? Why would they be offended? They'd be offended because Jesus shows up and he is who he is, God. He is who he is. He's on his mission. He's accomplishing his purposes. He's not the one that John wanted to make him out to be. In all, in, in all of John's specifications. He's not the one that John wanted to make him to be or the one we'd like him to be, some sort of God of our own devising. What's the offense? Is that God would show up and be God who he is and dare to not be God who I want him to be. You see what I'm saying? There's the offense. There's the offense that's coming out of this. And this is so relevant in our culture today. The God of our culture The God our culture is looking for is not the true God, but the God of our own affirmations. The litmus test for gods of our culture are they are gods if they don't offend us. As long as they love me, as long as they're affirming, as long as they don't offend me, then that's my God. Because it loves me. Because it doesn't offend me. The litmus test for the gods of our culture are if they are gods, they will not offend us. If they offend us, then we know they must not be true gods because true gods love us and want what's best for us, which is obviously what we desire. That's speaking, that's not me preaching at you. This is, what, this is what our culture says. Obviously, if they offend us, this is not a true God because gods love us and they want what's best for us. And what's best for us is obviously what we desire most. This admonition comes from Jesus, comes to us, pronouncing blessing on the one who is not offended, not because there's nothing to be offended about. He's like saying, blessed is the one who's not offended by me because I have nothing to offend you with. He's saying, blessed is the one who's not offended by me because what I've got to say, there's some offense to it. I'm going to show up and I'm going to be the God who I am on my mission. He is seeing the reality of who Jesus is as God. We submit to him as Lord, as King, and as Christ. He is the God who comes and tells us what we are, sinners. John the Baptist shows up and they're offended. Why? Because he says, you are sinners. Jesus shows up and calls for repentance. He is the God who is working to fulfill his mission, to glorify God for his purposes, not to fulfill our dream destinies. This is the point that Jesus continues to make with the crowd that's gathered around him. He points to their hypocrisy. Speaking about John the Baptist being this prophet that they're not, they're never happy with he the reed shaken in the wind. He's he's not uh, trying to be this appeal, this appealing voice. They go to him because he's a prophet speaking truth, and he closes with this indictment against his listeners uh, with this statement of these children who are in the marketplace and they they say play the flute and you wouldn't dance and we sang a dirge but you wouldn't weep and the idea is that there are those who will never be happy. Because the God that has revealed himself is not the God that they want. God plays a flute, I don't want to dance. God sings a dirge, I don't want to weep. You're not, you know, I conform to what I want you to do. What is it? Well, I don't know. But conform to my, be who I want you to be, not who you are. When the prophet John declares to them to repent, they say he's a demon possessed, he's a crazy man. That wasn't a message, that wasn't the message from God they wanted. When Jesus shows up and he extends mercy to the tax collectors and to the sinners, They say, that's not the God I want either. Both Jesus and John the Baptist were rejected by preaching a gospel of repentance to sinners for the forgiveness of their sin. The problem with them wasn't their mission, but that those who were hearing them wanted them to abandon their mission and take up their listeners' mission and their listeners' own desires. Why won't Jesus just do what we want? I mean, that's I, 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 kind of a, should chuckle, but I mean, I might be getting to our hearts a little bit there. Why won't he just do what we want? John the Baptist, you know, Jesus could have broke John the Baptist out of prison. You know that, right? Like he's the sovereign over the universe. And if he, if he says to this, this kid walking by on this, we just had this resurrection of this child in the previous story, he touches him and he gets up, resurrects the dead. You know, he can say, uh, prison doors open up, John walks out unscathed. Why doesn't Jesus just do what we want? And unfortunately, we're getting late on time, so we don't have a big, long time to go into a full discussion about uh, explanation of intense suffering that we go through in this life. But there is a supreme level that I think we can answer that question in a way. Why won't Jesus just do what we want? Because Jesus knows what we truly need. Jesus knows what we truly need. He knows what his mission is, and his mission is to glorify God the Father For the eternal good of his people. Jesus' mission is that God will be glorified through the rescuing of his people. Jesus as God is accomplishing the mission we need him to accomplish. One of my commentators, in these words, Jesus warns John not to reject or condemn him because of a wrong idea concerning what he has to do. And concerning the kinds of methods he should adopt in his work. He is the divine messiah who does the right things in the right way and at the right time. In this pronouncement, Jesus lays claim in a most unmistakable manner to absolute divinity. John the Baptist needed a reminder that Jesus was fulfilling his mission. And in the same way, when we are disappointed, when we are disappointed, we should look again and remember that the one who was to come actually did come, that he accomplished his mission, and he is coming again another commentator the way to know for sure whether jesus is the christ is to go back to his person and his work this is what we should always do when god fails to meet our expectations when we are overwhelmed by our personal problems and plagued with doubt we need to go back to jesus and look again to see who he is and what he does what has he done gosh romans 5 this is this is closing romans 5 says this therefore what has Jesus done? What has, this, what has He accomplished for us? He has accomplished this peace with God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So there's rejoicing, verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul, after diving deep in Romans, we talk about this in the first two and a half chapters. Revealing our sinfulness shows us the climb out of our condemned sinful situation through faith in the work of Christ. And here in chapter 5, he highlights... That the one who has repented of their sinfulness, trusting in Christ as their Savior, has peace with God. Has peace with God through Jesus Christ. If you don't know God through the justifying work of Jesus, you have no peace with God. You are not under peace, but you are under wrath. Real wrath. And wrath that if it is not diverted from you through faith in the one who absorbed it for you, will finally be poured out upon you in eternal hell. This wrath that God has against sinners is going to get poured out. And what we all deserve as sinners is to have the wrath of God poured upon us. It's what we see here in our art in the church of the guard, Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane, praying, God, if this cup can pass away, let it go away. What cup's he talking about? The cup of God's wrath. He's going to have to drink it. If 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 salvation is to happen for mankind, it's going to be poured into Jesus. And if the wrath is not poured into Jesus, it will, or absorbed by Jesus, it will be absorbed and received by us. But we can have peace gloriously. It does not have to end this way. We can have peace with God through faith in the work of Christ. And this peace is not nothing. It is everything. That's what Paul is saying in the rest of this section. The sufferings come. The final product is not disappointment. It's not shame. Because instead of wrath being poured upon us, what does Paul say? Love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Does Christ do temporarily all that John wanted? No. And will we go through life never disappointed in what comes our way? We could have a testimony service. No, we could all testify. But none who trust in Christ will finally be disappointed. None. None who trust in Christ will finally be disappointed. He has fulfilled his mission and it is for the glory of God And for the ultimate good of his people, it is the reason we should rejoice. Jesus is not our cosmic butler doing our biddings for all these temporary circumstances we want to have go our way. He's not our cosmic butler. He is the ruling, reigning, sufficient Savior. He is Jesus the Christ, the one who was to come, who has come, and is coming again. And in him, we should place our faith and rejoice. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the sending of your son. May he be our joy. May we give us, help us, God. I know what it's like. Suffering, disappointment, disappointment, disappointment. God, give us eyes to see the day. (laughs) Disappointment is gone forever. No one who is at peace with you will finally be disappointed. We may be disappointed left and right from here on out the rest of this temporal life. But Father, in the final analysis, through the mercy of your Son, no one who placed their faith in you will ever end disappointed. May that be our hope and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen.